Welcome to the Red Shirt Collective, a Star Trek watch-along podcast where we analyze and talk about all seven seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation from a radical leftist perspective. So energize with Earl Grey tea and chocolate from The Replicator. Set your phasers to fun. And prepare to engage. Ready, Captain? Yes, Captain. Make Make it it so. Welcome aboard. Hello, Nick. (laughs) Hello, Mike. I am just so excited for what we are going to talk about today. Me too. Yeah. This is just some, this is just some like old school Star Trek sweet, juicy goodness. (laughs) It is so juicy (laughs) and so good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, from one ugly bag of water to another. (laughs) (laughs) let's get into it shall we let's do it all right so today's episode we're discussing season one episode 17 home soil and i forgot to come up with the one in which the 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 one in which the crew of the enterprise buys their first home grow a crystal kit (laughs) oh my god That's pretty good. That is pretty damn good. That was that. That was. Uh, I, I I'm not gonna lie and say it was spur of the moment because it is. Grow a crystal is in my notes somewhere because that's all I could think um, about. But the title that was that was spur of the moment. Well, and that's great because you got me out of a pinch here where I did not have one. Oh, here so we go. You. All right. Yeah. Look at this partnership. This is what camaraderie it's, is all about. It's made to be. We yeah. So we join the Enterprise while they're out mapping the Pleiades cluster. Pleiades. Pleiades. Pleiades cluster. This is what I get again for not writing phonetically. I should just do it. (laughs) Uh, I always want to like have things spelled properly, but then I don't know how to say them. Fun fun fact, Nick. um, The reason that I know the pronunciation is that (laughs) when I was in high school, <laughs> I, I I can't believe I'm admitting to this. I went through this phase where I thought it was really cool to know stuff about stars and astronomy. <laughs> it is really cool. And that would be like my go-to flirt like method. It was like pointing out like the Pleiades and Orion's oh. belt and how Orion points to the North Star and um you know <laughs> And we're girls like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on, on the, the one date that I was ever on. Um, which, so the one time yeah, he used his line. The, the, the one time I was on a date. This is amazing. I, usually when people are sitting around talking about dating, I never have a story to tell. But this is like, I, I actually have a story. The, the, oh, that makes me so happy. The time I had a date. <laughs> um, in... In the bustling metropolis of Cody, Wyoming, oh, uh, set up by my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so, low light pollution, though I would imagine. Low light pollution, and I tried this. Which is and, great for a star loving kid. Uh, yeah, no, she, she was not having it. <laughs> she had zero percent interest in me, and was suffering through the night. 
Um, oh. I thought, but the, I, I was very sweet. It's not, I'm not a creepy dude. It I'm very sweet. No, I, you're not creepy. Yeah, I, I'm not. I like, didn't know you as a kid, but I can say at I, least as an adult. At that time, definitely was a terrible religious zealot, but like I was in the early <laughs> stages of like. But not in a creepy way. <laughs> Well, I was in the early <laughs> stages of realizing that this religion wasn't working for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, but, um, but yeah, anyway, it, it didn't go, it didn't go well. I don't recommend flirting by knowing where the Pleiades cluster is. Actually, I do recommend it. If you okay. take my approach to dating, which is I will screen out people who do not think that my special interests are fascinating and adorable. Oh, well, when you put That's it that way. That's how I go. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When you put it that way. All right. Okay. Long live the Pleiades cluster. You just got to find someone who's like, point out that cluster, babe. I want to <laughs> see it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> oh. See, you come for the analysis, you stay for the dating tips. You, exactly. We're just always giving out something extra every episode. Exactly. Yeah, that one's Last free. time it was dog poop. This time it's dating tips. <laughs> What will it be next time? <laughs> when will know. it be next time? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, never know. Yeah. <laughs> yep. We just operate out of pure sponta- spontaneity. That's right. <sighs> All right. So, <laughs> so while out mapping the Pleiades, Pleiades. Pleiades. Pleiades cluster, the Enterprise has been asked by the Federation to swing on over to Valara 3 to visit the group terraforming it as communications with them have been erratic and there's some concern for their welfare. As a subtle reminder that Starfleet is all about that space colonization, we open on the crew having a conversation about how wonderful and exciting terraforming quote-unquote uninhabited planets is. Oh my goodness. Captain Jean-Luc Picard states that it takes very special people to live in such desolation. And ship's counselor Deanna, it is Deanna, by the way. I finally, I don't know how I got to spelling it Diana. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. Which I knew that too. Once I, yeah. I looked in IMDb and I was like, of course. Anyway. Ship's counselor Deanna Troy agrees by saying visionaries who don't see the planet as it is, but as it will be. Commander Will Riker wistfully remarks that he's always wanted to see terraforming in action. (laughs) And I roll my eyes and then do a dirty side eye to all of them. It's, you know, it reminded me of one of my favorite courses I took in university a hundred years ago, um, which was a um, ecological history of the Pacific Northwest. And I remember Ooh. reading this book called Irrigated Eden. I just, I loved the title of it, but it was all about irrigation systems in the in the so-called American West. And that was all I could think of in many, in many points in this episode, because I was like, what is it with this obsession uh, mm-hmm. But particularly amongst Americans, but I, but I mean, even in general, you know, this obsession with like controlling the natural environment. So there's a part of me that was like, that's irritating because it's colonial. And then another part of me that was like, and also it's something that people do. Like people just have this obsession with like controlling yeah. the natural environment. So anyway, not to get into analysis now, but I, I it, <laughs> that's, I, I rolled my eyes and I was like, oh, well, interesting. Yep. I mean, that's usually the response to Star Trek storylines. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) 
Picard hails the base but gets nothing in return for a few awkward minutes until finally a director, Mondal, comes on screen and apologizes for the delay, saying they weren't expecting visitors. I always want to say Mandel, and I have to be like, it's Mondal mm. <laughs> to remember. Picard says they've been asked to see how the group is getting along, and Mondal replies that they're a bit behind but are back on schedule. Meanwhile, Troy runs over to Picard and informs him that their presence is alarming to Mondal for some reason. Picard, with this information, then tries to be very friendly, asking about the rest of the group and offering for everyone to come aboard the Enterprise for some rest and re recreation, but Mondal grumpily tells him they have no time for that. Troy remarks that Mondal's fear is escalating and he excuses himself while well, he excuses himself back to work. Troy says she senses deliberate concealment from him and it is intense. Mm -hmm. I sense this is the most specific Troy has ever been and it's really fun to see. I really wish they let her do this more often. Mm -hmm. I felt her usage in the, at least in the earlier parts of the episode was like, oh yeah, like this is how she could be helpful. <laughs> Picard tries to push Mondal, asking if the crew, the Enterprise crew, can come look around as they've heard about the group's remarkable terraforming achievements and would love to see them in person. The old man refuses multiple times, but after being informed by Troy that the director is now nearly at the point of panic at the mention of a visit, Picard tells Mondal in no uncertain terms that an away team will be beaming down to visit shortly. Picard requests that Troy join the away team to keep providing them with insight and tells Riker to stay on his toes because someone that tense can be very unpredictable. Do they ever actually address the fact of why he was so scared for them to come down? No, uh, no. Uh, this was another episode where I'm like, on one hand, it was very well written. And then on the other hand, there's so many things where you're like, what was the point of that? Yeah, I, I know. Because now I'm thinking like, wait a minute, they never actually circle back to that plot line. And in fact, they, they actually kind of yeah. contradict that plot line. Yes, they yeah. massively contradict it. Yeah. I kept waiting for the twist at the end where it's like yeah. he knew all along and then it, nothing came of it. No. Okay. 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 Uh, when they get down to the planet, a stunningly not blonde woman finally <laughs> greets them warmly. We learn that this beauty is Louisa Kim, gardener of Edens, which to which I give a heavy sigh. Mm -hmm. It's so apropos that you bring up that book because it's like, why is it always Eden it's as well? It's always Eden. It's always Eden. It's mm -hmm. like Manifest Destiny and it's not even hidden. It's just so <laughs> annoying. So Kim introduces the away team to hydraulic specialist Arthur Malinson. 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 Yeah. I remembered, and Chief Engineer Bjorn Benson. But we can just call him Mullet. <laughs> he wants some Mullet. <laughs> or BB. Uh, Bjorn, is abs or Bjorn absolutely loses his shit over Data upon shaking hands with him and, and realizing he's an android. He excitedly asks where Data was manufactured and if there are others like him, to which my sweet baby replies, both are matters of protracted discussion. I am already 10 times happier than last episode when there was good sci-fi, but no joy. I, I was like, this is the this is the space version of know where you really from. 
with data because I was like, and because his answer was also the answer of someone who's like, I get asked this all the time. And could you just, you you know, it's like, no, I'm like, can I just do my job, please? Yeah. It's like, I'm really from, you know, (laughs) LA or whatever, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Louisa continues to be very friendly and hospitable and Riker presses her a little bit about Mondal's reluctance to let them on planet. Louisa says usually Mondal is quite charming, but he's just stressed right now because they're at a critical phase. Louisa then offers to explain their process and show the away team around. As she's starting her tour, Troy leans over to Riker and says that Louisa is as open as she appears, but the two other men are being, quote unquote, secretive. Louisa is then showing the team a map of the planet on some big round doohickey. I think it was like a model of the planet <laughs> with like this um, latitude yeah. <laughs> pole yeah. with like a computer that then had like area maps of the planet. It actually was kind of cool in a in like concept. Um, anyway, she's showing them the map of the planet and saying that they take a lifeless planet and little by little transform it into an M-class environment. She's clearly extremely passionate about her job and seems thrilled to have people to teach and to talk to about it. She states with a gentle smile, terraforming makes you feel a little godlike, to which I say, yikes, Louisa. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Working the hell out of her gray jumpsuit, Mm -hmm. Louisa walks around the space like she's on a runway, just teaching the crew about how they select planets to terraform, importantly noting that one of the major criteria is that the planet has to be without life, and importantly, without the prospect of life developing naturally, a status which apparently is determined by the Federation. And can we just appreciate for a moment that... For once, we have a non-male, non-white character explaining yes. to everybody else how things work and rocking the suits that look exactly like Chairman Mao's <laughs> outfit. <laughs> I got serious communist revolution vibes from the whole terraforming team. Yes. So much. Yeah, man, she threw a thick belt on and she was making it work. Oh. I was like... Oh, Get it, girl. She was Louisa working. is very much my type, so I was really happy to finally, you know, oh, have someone to have a little crush on would, uh, as the guest. Would, would you like her to point out the Pleiades cluster to you? Mm. See, I would. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be very cute. <laughs> so Data then tells Arthur that the efficiency of his hydraulic landscaping is quite elegant. <laughs> Which is also a pickup line. A little flirtatious. <laughs> the efficiency of your hydraulic landscaping is uh, quite elegant. It's like, baby, you see nothing yet. Just you wait. <laughs> um, he seems quite impressed with their setup. Arthur says that it isn't quite yet that he's being disturbed by erratic power surges in the servo mechanisms, which is preventing him from getting the whole operation up and running properly. Helmsman Jordi LaForge asks if the high saline content of the water could be the problem, and Arthur seems to perk up and become animated about the conversation, but Bjorn roughly interrupts their brainstorming and shuts it all down. And we never come back to 
the reason behind that conversation yeah, for the remainder <laughs> of the episode. Do. Director Mondel suddenly barges in, speaking very loudly and with a posh, outrageous accent and cadence that could match Picard's at his most wound up. So I was like, we're going to have the old man with an accent off in this episode. I'm here for it. (laughs) He's uh, apologizing to everyone for being gruff earlier. Mandel sort of rebukes Troy's compliment about their work and then menacingly tells Arthur, shouldn't he be in the hydraulic chamber, which Arthur seems startled about and replies now. Mondel sharply replies, yes, now, to which Riker and Troy exchange quite hilarious looks of like, what the fuck to each other (laughs) as poor Arthur slinks away to go to the hydraulic chamber. It almost felt like he was being sent off to be like punished or something. Well, (laughs) (laughs) which, yeah, Data and Jordy take over his workstation, excitedly remarking on the hydraulics. Mondel comes up behind them and sort of kind of scoots them over to see some vegetation graphs. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone is being very sus about the water situation specifically, Mm. to which I scratch my chin and say, hmm. Mm. Troy suddenly looks extremely upset and yells for Riker, saying Arthur is in trouble. They all run to the hydraulic chamber where we can hear Arthur yelling for help in an admittedly hilarious cartoony way. (laughs) It was like, to me, it was like a cart, like in a cartoon. It's like, oh, lasers and crashing and someone yelling help. Yeah, but it was like kind of creepy too. I didn't think, maybe I'm a psycho. I didn't think. Oh, really? I was like laughing, but then when the door opened, I felt bad. I was like, oh, he's he's dead. Oh, man. I thought it was like kind of harrowing. Because he was kind of like, help, help. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, bishoo, bishoo, boom, boom, boom. Okay, okay. All right, well, now I'm rethinking it. I guess I'll I could. Put a, I, I was, I'll put a clip in and the audience can judge Okay, for you judge for yourselves, people. Commander. What is it, Diana? Malinson. He's in trouble. Can you open it? It's jammed. And I just thought it was like going down this creepy 2001 Space Odyssey vibe at that point. So I mean... That was definitely what they intended. <laughs> and again, maybe if you're not cyn- cynical like me, that's what you would get from it. Okay, okay, okay. You're just too pure of heart, Michael. Uh, that's my problem. I see. <laughs> it's your strength, not a problem. <laughs> um. So, yes, yeah, so we hear poor Arthur yelling for help. We can hear laser blasts and, you know, stuff being destroyed in the background. And all of it is happening behind a door that is jammed shut. When the crew gets to the door, and finally the door opens, poor Arthur is laying on the ground, covered in severe burns with smoking holes burned in his clothes. Riker lets us know in a voiceover that Arthur is critically injured and that they're attributing this to a malfunctioning laser drill. They shut off power to the hydraulics room so Yar can go in safely to recover Arthur and they both beam up to sick bay, though Riker has informed us that it is probably too late for dear Arthur. Louisa tells Mondel that they should all go to be with him and though he looks like he's going to refuse, he finally curtly nods his head in agreement and Riker, Troy, Louisa, and Mondel also 
beam up to the Enterprise to be with Arthur in what are likely his final moments. Data and Jordy, my smart little babies, are on the case. Data is in the hydraulics chamber while Jordy is out with Bjorn at the consoles. Data tells Jordy over the comms that the drill did not seem to have malfunctioned. Rather, it seemed to have been acting with a will, a consciousness. Yes. Mm. Bjorn, who can hear what Data is saying, responds simply, I can't explain it, when Jordy snaps his head around to look at him questioningly. From here, things get so delightful. <laughs> Jordy tells, sorry, Data tells Jordy to return power to the hydraulic chamber so he can rerun the program. Upon doing so, the laser drill seems to be back to normal at first, but then quickly the door slams shut and the drill turns to target the very sexy back of the neck of my sweet Data. Data whips around and dodges out of the way of the laser. <laughs> that was a little comical, though. <laughs> That's what I found so comical. It was mm-hmm. like he wanted to uh, have the program run so he could like bounce around the room, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. bounce around the laser beams. Uh, uh, as he keeps dodging laser beams, he yells for Jordy to turn the servos off, but Bjorn yells back that they are off. Though the sound of the laser beams is very loud and obvious, so much so that Data is yelling over the noise, Jordy sort of just casually asks him, like, what's up? <laughs> to which Data <laughs> responds, too much to explain. And I LOL. Jordy comes running to Data's aid, like the good friend that he is. He commands Bjorn to open the doors while he pings the Enterprise to inform them that there's a problem. Picard commands him to be specific when Jordy tells him Data's getting non-consensually blasted by a drill <laughs> in the hydraulics room. Picard super helpfully just yells, get him out of there. Like, wow, yeah. what a leader. Oh, shoot. I hadn't thought of getting him out of there. <laughs> I know. I was just going to leave him in there. <laughs> Bjorn uh, can't get the door open, and when Jordy yells that they can't get in, Data doesn't reply, setting Jordy and me into a panic. Suddenly, the doors open, and the room is full of dust and smoke. Data comes <laughs> walking out with some calm, big dick energy, and he tells Picard he's got the sitch totes under control. My man. <laughs> Jordy and Data immediately start discussing the drill's behavior, like two good little engineers, and Data tells Jordy that the drill adapted to his evasive tactics, that there was a mind controlling the drill attacking him, that no static program could have accomplished this, which, I mean, isn't Data a program that adapts to things like this? So I was a bit confused throughout this entire episode that adaptive programming was such a big challenge in the 25th century. (laughs) But anyway, Bjorn lets out a wail of anguish anguish upon seeing the drill, which is just absolutely demolished. He bemoans the year of work, wasted. Data seems pretty unfazed. (laughs) He's basically shrugging and being like, I had to. I had no choice. He's like, I had to fuck up your drill, dude. Sorry. I mean, true. Yeah. Like, what was <laughs> right. he going to do? Well, it's like, yeah, but also you're the one who ran the program knowing that it probably was going to attack you. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I'm not saying he's totally at fault, but it's also like you sort of, this would be my summary for this entire episode is like you created the situation in which this thing happened to you. Right, right, right. <laughs> so that we then join everyone in the ready room maybe Mm -hmm. we still don't know what the ready room is Mm -hmm. 
where Picard and Mondal have an uppity accented patriarchal authority figure pissing contest and Picard wins sending Mondal away to his room. <laughs> Picard is forcing the terraforming group to stay on the Enterprise until this mystery is solved. Dun, dun. Yeah. Data tells Picard he's certain that the drill was reprogrammed to shoot anyone moving in the hydraulics room. <laughs> Jordy whispers with awe that would take a master programmer, and Data agrees, but says this is what was done. He is sure of it. Yeah, it's one of those moments when the... <laughs> the fact that they wrote this in the late 80s is <laughs> kind of showing a bit. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was like. Am I wrong? But I'm like, I think we have adaptive programming today. Like, I know it's not as advanced as like data, but yeah. anyway, I was like, I don't think it's that hard for programming yeah. to just shoot at something that's moving. <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, instead of saying that would take a master programmer, they, he could have just said, but that would have taken a programmer or something, yeah. you know, or an automatic yeah. programming simulator or something. I don't know. They could have made they could have made some like techie sounding word. Exactly. So Picard says it must be one of the four terraformers because they're the only literally the only people on the entire planet. But which one and why? Picard, Jordy, and Data go out to the bridge and are informed by Chief Medical Officer Dr. Beverly Crusher that author, the author, that Arthur is D.E.D. dead. Riker says Valara 3 is totally shut down at this point. Picard says sends Jordy and Data, and can I just say, it's so fun to see them together. I just love their friendship so much, and I love that they both just love like science. So anyway, they get sent off the cute little duo to investigate to see if they can find any signs of malfeasance on the base. Picard then orders security officer Tasha Yar to provide him and Counselor Troy with personnel records on the three living terraformers, complete with psych profiles and the whole shebang. He thinks they'll be able to suss out which of the terraformers would be capable of murder, and he says to Riker that they're having to become detectives for this one while Riker looks like he's sucking on a lemon. Riker had such a like so funny weird face on. And it's so funny because you can tell Picard is like, oh, shoot, we have to become detectives for this. And it's like, dude, you are so happy. He's right now. all you there for it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, who cares that someone died? I get to solve a mystery. So now. The game is afoot. And I could hear in my head the Law and Order theme playing, you know? Dun, mm. dun, 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 dun. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, I like this. And then the episode just totally took a turn in a completely <laughs> different direction from this, like, you know, oh, let's investigate who could be trying to sabotage this and who's trying to murder. And then I was like, oh, wow, this I, I did not see this episode going this way. <laughs> Yeah, I, w I too was having fun because I'm like, it's kind of like one of their Sherlock episodes uh -huh. but without the annoying Sherlock stuff. I, exactly. You know, and I love solving a mystery. Uh -huh. I love investigating, uh, you know, not with the police, but like this was kind of a fun in space investigation. <laughs> so I was like, OK, this could be fun. Yeah. Yeah. And then we just went completely somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. Like, OK. 
Uh, back in the now powered down hydraulics room, Jordy and Data look down the drill hole where Jordy, where Jordy says that everything down there is inorganic, made of basic elements. However, there are flashes of light that are almost musical. Jordy notes with awe that the light has color variations, rhythm, and complex harmonies. Data asks him if it could be alive, but Jordy dismisses this as his visor isn't picking up on any carbon or any organic material. Data says that whatever it is, it could be what the team is covering up, what at least one of them has been willing to kill for. We're back on the Enterprise where Data and Jordy have brought back the very cute little twinkling kind of LED <laughs> lights <laughs> in a jar that Data is still claiming could be a life form. Somehow this is apparently the purview of Dr. Crusher, which to me makes no sense because it's like she's a medical doctor. Yeah, not an inorganic she's space like material a... investigator. <laughs> right, or even like... <laughs> A biologist? I don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess when you're on a ship, you work with what you got. It, yeah. So it just seems like on the Enterprise, which is supposedly an exploration ship, there would be people with specialty in, like, alien life forms. There might be one of those. <laughs> right. You, you would but think. But apparently Dr. Crusher just does it all. <laughs> <laughs> So the team all stands around talking about the possibility or impossibility of inorganic life. And Dr. Crusher lists all the criteria for organic life, noting that it is possible that this potential life form has shown signs of growth and development. Dr. Crusher suggests that they apply the scientific method, observe, theorize, and attempt to prove. She starts by having the computer analyze the form, and it confirms that it is indeed completely inorganic. Also, by the way, this is when I noticed Wesley's adorable little head behind everybody and squealed with delight. I get him, Jordy, and Data in one room investigating exciting sciencey stuff. It's like my greatest dream come true. <laughs> I was just having so much fun in this episode. Mm. Beverly's next experiment is to put the life form on her screen and magnify it, which is like the Star Trek version of Enhance. <laughs> factor 5, Factor 10. Yeah. As she increases the magnification, the form starts emitting a high-pitched hum. The crew notices this, and Bev orders the computer to resume normal scan and demagnify, thinking this was the cause for the hum, but the hum increases in volume. Until Picard tells everyone to step back and realizes the further they get from the form, the quieter the noise becomes. Wesley notes that the flashes haven't changed and wonder if the hum could be connected to them. Which makes no sense because the hum changed. So it's like, but anyway. <laughs> Bev ordered the computer to analyze the flash pattern and the computer comes back to say there is no pattern and it is uncertain of the source. In a moment of contrivance, ben Bev tells computer to speculate on the source, and it replies back simply, life. <laughs> <laughs> and the music swells while everyone's eyes alight with wonder. We cut to the ready room, maybe, <laughs> where Mondal is yelling at Picard, what do you mean a life form? Reminding him that the Federation certified this planet as lifeless as my dusty old womb. Which I will say, uh, I'm very happy about. It's not a sad thing. 
People always get sad when I say that. I'm like, no, I'm glad. <laughs> uh, Picard explains that it is understandable that they would make the mistake, given that this life form is inorganic, a thing which they did not know could exist. Picard then accuses Mondal of knowing about this and perhaps killing to keep it a secret, to which Mondal acidly remarks, I create life, and then nearly storms out before turning around to finish, I don't take it. And then he completes storming out. Which is kind of odd because the whole episode was premised on the fact that someone was, you know, deliberately... Anyway, it, it just... I feel like they set it up like the whole idea of him being reluctant to have them come down to the planet and yes. like sort of oddly sending, you know, poor Malinson into the into the drill yes. room and all that. And then like here they're just gonna like, oh, just kidding, actually he didn't do anything. And like, wait, then why were you <laughs> why were you punctuating the beginning of this episode with so many very deliberate scenes? <laughs> I don't know. It's another episode that feels like halfway through, they just switched all the writers in the writer room mm -hmm. and were like, okay, now you go like an improv <laughs> class or something. Yeah. I mean, I'm not complaining in the sense that like I liked where it went and, and I also liked how it yeah. started. I just, I'm not sure that, that how it started and where it went were the, the same episode in a way, you know? I feel like we could have had two really good episodes. My point exactly. Yes, thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, and then we got one that was stitched together. <laughs> thank you for like... saying the thing that I could not manage to get out of my, <laughs> out of my word hole. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> Picard in full investigator mode asked Troy what she sensed from Mondal during that exchange. She said his accusation was useful as Mondal reacted on two levels. He likely did know about the life form, which again, never fucking comes back. No. But he was shocked at the accusation of murder, though the idea of committing the murder or just being accused of it, she couldn't tell... <laughs> And she's back to being useless, I see. Yar confirms for Picard that Mondal does have the background necessary to make it possible for him to have been the one that reprogrammed the drill with this godly, unimaginable programming that everyone keeps talking about. <laughs> At Picard's prompting, Yar continues to speculate that Arthur worked where the life form was found and likely knew about it. So if Mondal were obsessive enough, it would make sense for him to kill Arthur to keep it a secret. Troy, with a very serious straight face, says that all terraformers are obsessive. It's part of their career profile. Like, <laughs> okay. Riker asks about the lovely Louisa, and Troy weirdly replies, she's possessed of highly abstracted reality. Lovely visions, little data, to which I say, um, <laughs> what? Like, she's a biosphere designer. Yeah. <laughs> Even if she is more artistic, like, you can't do that job and not be... A data expert. Data-driven or, like, science-minded to some degree. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was so weird. <laughs> She then dramatically turns to Riker and says, but you'd, you'd do better than I. Which again, it's like, what are we even talking yeah, about? Yeah, what do you right mean? And, um, and Riker's like, oh yeah, let me just stick out my butt <laughs> chin and go ask some questions. Which, and I was thinking about it because this, this interaction bothered me so much. And not just because I have a crush on Louisa and she's definitely giving me bisexual energy. Mm. So it's like, mm. Troy, 
you might have just as much chance with her as Riker. Yeah, right? But also, it was just like for once, a woman who wasn't automatically sexualized by Riker, like she got to just be in her role and her and Riker did not have a flirty exchange. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, of course, they have to wedge this in where it doesn't fucking fit. Yeah. It just made me so mad. And it's like also this woman's been traumatized. She just lost a fucking coworker. And now they, you know, she's like, what is going on with this planet? Like, what is my implication in all of this? Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to send Riker to like flirt with her. I know. To get That was kind of gross. Ugh, I did. Anyway. I did love though that I, I did actually love Troy's line about that terraformers are obsessive. Like I, I did kind of think that that's there is an element of that in like the Star Trek universe where it's like people with certain job types would have to be like a very particular personality, you know, like to be able to isolate yourself on this planet with just your coworkers for like a year, just God. you know, terraforming. Yeah. Like you would have to be like really obsessive, and they played that really well with the characters in this one. They did, but the thing is too, like I wouldn't I describe Louise as obsessive. No, you know, I, like she's just loves her fucking job. Yeah, I mean, you could say obsessive and then be like, but more like passionate, you know, mm. than yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to me, it kind of hit like um, this way that we deify, uh, you know, Silicon Valley yep. white dudes. Yep. yep. Of like, oh, they're you know they have the personalities they have and they can do whatever it takes because they're obsessive like as yeah. if it's a good thing yep. and I was like why are we like this yep yep um so anyway yes I think Louise is bisexual <laughs> oh I'm going with that that's I've already I've, I'm, I've already been like yeah that's that's for sure the, that's for she sure just the case gives the vibe yep and also Deanna you are the psychic one mm-hmm. <laughs> like why would Riker be able to get more out of this woman than you? Yeah, and also, like, I do like that Riker doesn't really get anything else out of her. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course not, yeah. because he's some random guy who's yeah. just showing up to, like, smize at her. Louisa's, and then, she's not having it. Louisa's like, no, I'm not, whatever, like, fuck off, weird guy. She's really upset. Yeah. It's like, leave me alone. Yeah, anyway. Anyway, so Riker goes and joins Louisa in her room. She looks stunning her Mm. hair's down Mm. she's in some nice spacey dress she just looks beautiful she's looking out the window crying very artistically it's quite a scene uh she seems quite broken it's actually quite sad um he steps up to her in a very intimate sexual way that immediately makes me angry like you're not a fucking spy dude you're not james bond you don't have to fuck her for intel (laughs) anyway she asks if it's true about the life form, and Riker says that they're still not sure, but they think so, and he explains that it's a microscopic and or inorganic, I was going to say organism, <laughs> I guess that doesn't work, um, anyway, but it's microscopic and inorganic, so it wasn't her fault that they missed it. She says everything she's worked for so hard is falling apart, and he tells her that the life form is very beautiful and offers to take her to see it. She says perhaps later, and I seriously thought for a minute they were going to kiss or something. Mm -hmm. It was such a weird scene or Mm -hmm. like it was going to kind of fade to black like they were fucking. Mm -hmm. But then Riker just stands up and leaves. Thank God. I know. (laughs) I was like, if they kiss right now, it's going to be so contrived. I had such the same thought. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was very uncomfortable. 
So we then cut to Picard being called into the medical lab by Dr. Crusher. When he gets there, Jordy says he detected a shift in the energy pattern, and Picard notes that the hum is now gone, even though Jordy is incredibly close to the life form. He wonders why, but nobody has any answers. They all crowd around the life form, and then Jordy says it's changing, that the infrared output is increasing. The form starts glowing red, it starts humming again, and the computer clangs input overload warning. The form in the screen where the magnification was displayed flashed with a bright light, and then the magnification deactivates. When they all look back at the form, there are now two of them. It reproduced. So Data softly says, only life can replicate itself, Doctor. Inorganic or not, it is alive. Mm. Bev orders a quarantine shield, which I guess isn't working properly, and eventually orders everyone out of the lab stat. Bev orders a quarantine shield, which I guess isn't working properly, and eventually orders everyone out of the lab stat. But before they can go, the computer alerts them to a translation request being patched in. A staticky, incoherent language starts coming from the life forms, and Bev orders everyone out of the lab again. This time, they actually all get out. Picard orders a power transfer to initiate a quarantine seal on the lab and informs Riker that not only is the life form indeed life, but it's intelligent life at that. And the intense music intensely jangles. <laughs> security officer Junior, security officer Worf, who is sadly generally in the background of this episode. Although they did make good use of everyone, so it was okay. But every time Tashi Yar talks, I just think you could be Worf and soon you will be. <laughs> yeah, it's not long now. <laughs> so Worf says the life forms are generating enough energy to lock them all out of the medical lab systems. Picard gathers the terraformers in the observation lounge and immediately goes after Mondal, demanding to know how much he knows about the life forms. Mondal says not a thing. But Daddy Picard is not having any of it. He tells him to cut the crap and stop being evasive. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Mondal admits that he knew about the life forms, but he didn't believe them to be alive. He saw random energy patterns and meaningless silicon crystals. That's all. <laughs> Which, again, it's like, then why all of this buildup? Yeah. Mondal seems truly shaken when Picard reveals that not only are they alive, but intelligent at that. He then asks when the crew first encountered the crystals. Bjorn props Mondal to tell Picard, but Mondal seems too shaken to speak. So Bjorn tells Picard himself, saying when they first arrived, they saw sparkles in the sand. Bjorn insists they didn't think anything of it at all, and Mondal finds his voice to reiterate that they were assured many times that there was no life on this planet, and therefore they were not looking for life, any of them. Picard concedes that this makes sense, but pushes back that there must have been a point when they started to question something, hence Mondal's fear at their arrival. Bjorn says that they had no reason for a long time to suspect anything but natural phenomena, but then when they started terraforming, the patterns in the sand ceased being random. Suddenly, geometric shapes would appear and disappear. Mondal and Bjorn both confirmed that they didn't think the crystals were trying to communicate at the time. Which, really? <laughs> Again, everyone here is a scientist. 
Riker interrupts the conversation over the comm, informing Picard that they regained magnification on the life form, which I take to mean they can see it. <laughs> For some reason, that's how they were referring to it being on screen. <laughs> and it has divided yet again. Picard has them patch a visual to the observation lounge, and upon seeing it, Bjorn and Mondal swear that they never observed anything like that on the planet. We cut to the boys on the bridge looking at the life form magnification. Worf and Geordi state that they cannot understand the pattern. Data orders a spectrum analysis of the life forms, and computer lists them out in a convenient way so they can categorize them as named. Seems our little buddies are made out of transistor materials, conductors, things that create a charge when lit, and materials that light up when charged. But is it alive? Worf asks Data. Computer responds, probability positive, to which Worf snapes, I wasn't asking you. <laughs> and oh, Worf, I love you so. Mm. Riker is called down to engineering over a fluctuating backup power situation. He learns there is no seal any longer on the medical lab, and the engineer cannot get the seal back up no matter what she tries. Everyone heads to the bridge, and we finally get to hear what these beautiful little crystals have been trying to say for so long. <laughs> Ugly, giant bags of mostly water. <laughs> oh, my God. And little fun fact, that was on my very short list of names for this very own podcast that we have here. Oh. Um, and I feel like we should add this to our intro somehow, somewhere. Oh, we should. I, or the outro. I thought it was Q who called humans dusty bags of mostly water. Not ugly, but... No, it was Does, our little crystal friend. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, because I remember that so vividly. I mean, maybe he says it at some point, but it originated with these guys. Yeah. Da we do have a Q tie-in coming up, though. <laughs> Okay, 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 uh, okay. So stay tuned. <laughs> Data continues to be my boyfriend by saying, that is an accurate description of humans, sir. The Universal Translator is coming online, sir. Ugly. Ugly. Giant. Bags of mostly water. Bags of mostly water. An accurate description of humans, sir. You are over 90% water surrounded by a flexible container. <laughs> Bev steps forward and speaks loudly and slowly to the life forms in the same way white people do to brown people with accents. Friggin' Bev. So she asks if the life forms can understand them. <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, Bev, uh, you're such a fucking Karen. Mm. The life forms respond, they do understand. They say they want the water bags gone, that they've tried to tell them to go away, but they didn't listen. Picard says, we didn't hear you. We come in peace oh like a fucking clown. Goodness, yeah. We come in uh, peace. That's why we're killing you. <laughs> right. The life forms say they tried peace, that they still didn't listen, so they had to kill the bag who drilled into their home. To which Riker helpfully says, they killed Mallinson. <laughs> Always going to trip on his name. They killed Mallinson. Like, yes, dude, we, we got it. <laughs> oh, did yeah. they? Oh, that's news. 
Deanna steps forward and says to the life forms that they couldn't see and hear them before, but they can see and hear them now. And they're beautiful. All life is beautiful. Oh, jeez. The life, <laughs> the life form responds that the bags in the dome did know and that they caused much death and made them kill. And now they're at war with the bags. <laughs> I just, this episode fucking delights me so much. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're calling them bags, like mm-hmm. that is not even me being funny. That's what they were <laughs> no, saying. No, that's actually that the so terminology. Amazing. Yeah. Because that is like something I would say, mm-hmm. but the, the life form was saying it. Yeah. I'm like, crystals, we need to hang out. You're fun. <laughs> <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. They are fun. So after declaring war, the screen goes black and the ship rocks from some kind of yeah, unidentified blast or something. And it's officially find out time. <laughs> Data theorizes that now that the single cells have reproduced and are functioning like a computer, like a computer, more is stronger, so they've grown significantly in strength since being brought to the lab. And then the ship rocks dramatically with another blast. As it cuts back from the break, we find out via voiceover that the crew has started referring to the lifeforms collectively as a microbrain. <laughs> and I fucking died. I know, and they call it that for the rest of the episode, too. For the rest of the episode, mm-hmm. with a straight face. Mm-hmm. Um, macro head for a micro brain. Q would be proud. <laughs> oh, there's our Q reference. <laughs> yep. They have a visual on the micro brain. <laughs> Fucking, every time I had to type it, I'm like, I cannot believe I have to type this. <laughs> oh, they have a visual on the micro brain, but have not been able to restore communication with it. Data says the bolts of light that are sporadically emitting from the microbrain are its way of reprogramming and that it has quicker rapport with their computers than they themselves do. And he looks personally offended by this (laughs) (laughs) as if he's been like snubbed by the computer. (laughs) Jordy notices a decrease in infrared sensitivity and Dr. Crusher speculates that this could be the resting state that precedes reproduction in organic single-celled life forms the calm before the storm as Riker puts it Riker was just like man on the spot to like say the obvious thing that someone else had already said yeah 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 he played his part pretty well in that sense (laughs) (laughs) and he would always like but he was always like walking across like he would like walk out from behind somebody and just kind of like go across while saying it yeah you're right it was actually quite funny I didn't even mind it Picard says that they should use this calm he tells Yar to beam the microbrain back to where it came from, but unfortunately, it does not allow for this to happen. Picard then goes full colonizer, saying intelligent life form or not, the safety of the ship is his priority and orders Data to create a vacuum in the lab by removing all the air. However, somehow he keeps forgetting the action is blocked as the microbrain has fully invaded computers and is controlling all the systems at this point. Picard asks the terraformers how they tried to kill the lifeforms down on the planet. Mondal yells that they don't know. They weren't even aware that they were there. So Picard then asks what poor dead Arthur was doing <laughs> when he was attacked. And they respond that he was messing with the thin layer of saline water that exists on the planet in between the rock and the sandy layers. Bjorn speculates that this saline fluid is their circuitry. 
And Louisa states tearfully that if they had continued to remove that water, they would have destroyed them all. Picard affirms that this is reason enough for anyone to go to war. Riker alerts Picard that reproduction is happening again, and we see the five tiny LED lights <laughs> turn into a tennis ball-sized inorganism, mm-hmm. which is a term I'm quoting now. I'm creating it. I'm patenting it. Yeah, yeah. TM. You got there. Although it might already exist. I just was too lazy to look it up. <laughs> From observe. Well, I was too busy. I was not lazy. To yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that much credit. Uh, let's be real here. Um. Yeah, I've been like nonstop for three days, as have you. From observing this reproductive cycle, Data realizes that though reproduction typically is very energy intensive, the microbrain did not get this energy from the ship. It doesn't seem to be draining that energy from anywhere else. Jordy posits that it is getting energy from the cadmium salts, meaning, as Data states, it must be photoelectric. Picard says to kill the lights in the lab, but again, Picard, the computer is still under the microbrain's control, so he can't do it. Riker heads off to do it manually through a control panel outside the lab. The lights drop, the inorgasm. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was going to do that. The inorganism. (laughs) Ah, yes, I remember seventh grade science class two. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> slows down and gets dimmer. The micro brain begs for light. Picard says they'll only give it to them if they agree to talk. The life form accuses Picard of killing them and of being like the others. Picard says they do not wish to kill them and that they will end the war if the micro brain ends the war. The life form says quite poetically, darkness, death, terrible, must go home to wet sand. War over. (laughs) I was very moved. And Picard agrees and tells Riker to turn up the lights a little bit. Picard says they mean them no harm and asks if they believe him about that, to which they respond a hesitant yes, but say that they don't trust him yet. Then the microbrain reads everybody, saying they're all still too arrogant, too primitive, and to come back in 300 years or so when they've grown the fuck up. I love it. And perhaps at that point, (laughs) we can talk about trust. It was so good. Mm -hmm. Picard says he understands, and they'll leave after they send them home. We end with another deeply quotable line from Mondal. I wanted to create a place where living things could thrive. And all the while, I was about to destroy the life that is there. <laughs> Troy and Picard give apologies and respects to the microbrain and then beam it back down to the wet sand it came from. Picard says via voiceover that they have placed a quarantine on Valara 3 and are taking the terraformers back home, and that perhaps they can learn from this tragedy to prevent it happening elsewhere. But judging from the entire rest of the show, we know that they don't. <laughs> The end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. And I was just saying to myself, I'm like, why? This is Starfleet. Like, why would they be shocked to find that life can exist in a multitude of forms throughout the the, the known universe? Like, wouldn't that kind of be a no-brainer? Right. Like, wouldn't that be your first thought all the time? Right. Like, oh. And also, no one has discovered anything like this this whole time. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, 
like maybe okay, sure, but like I I, I don't know. I'm just like they, they would not be that shocked. Yeah, you're right. Like somebody would would be maybe like, not like purely inorganic life, but I'm just saying exactly. like you haven't discovered anything that like shook the foundations of what you know of science. Yeah. That you've had you know, it's yeah. like and you think if you're terraforming, like I know that they say multiple times that the Federation, you know, did like verified that there was no life and no possibility of life. But wouldn't you have someone on the team who, or have some kind of protocols that are like, these are signs of life. Uh -huh. And if you encounter them, no matter how unlikely it seems, then reach out, you know, stop what you're doing and reach out. Well, that, that goes to my, my, like one of the deeper questions I had about this episode. And, and I know, I know it sounds like I'm, just like harping on the episode, but I'm actually not like, I really actually liked what it brought up, but it, it, it's that question about the ethics behind this. Like you're saying, like mm -hmm. if, even if you had like the stamp of approval from, you know, the Federation, they were like, okay, there's no life here. Like, wouldn't you just proceed so wildly cautiously you know, especially on a planet that does have water. Right. I, well, exactly. And also like there's got to be life out there. Like, you know, humans living on earth in the 20th century, you know, believed that there could be like life in outer space basically. Mm -hmm. And now we have this, yeah. you know, intergalactic, you know, Starfleet that goes out there and interacts with these different forms of life. Like, wouldn't it just be kind of like, wouldn't you expect to encounter not just organic carbon-based life, but other life forms? And wouldn't it therefore be really problematic? Wouldn't terraforming in general be just really problematic? But then I'm also like, I think terraforming must be like an old school sci-fi kind of thing, right? Like, isn't that like this idea that we're going to go, but, are, but aren't we like, like the idea that we're going to go, I, like there's something really cool about sci-fi when it's not like dark sci-fi which is that like there's this hope of like other worlds and other planets and mm -hmm. that we can go and it's not just this earth and they juxtapose it so nicely in this episode with the fact that like but humans aren't really ready for that you know that this life forms like come back in 300 years when you guys aren't just these like unevolved um you know kind of life-destroying monsters and so it's, it's like, yeah, there probably is life out there. And yeah, we're probably not ready to encounter it either. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we're in, you know, it just, to me, like, taken out, I do really like this episode. Mm -hmm. And it is one that I distinctly remembered and was so excited to talk about on the show. And I didn't remember that it was in the first season. So I was like, so fucking delighted mm. that this happens this early because I, for some reason, remembered it being later. Um, so I want to be clear, like, I really do like this episode, but I think taken in the greater context of Star Trek, even just TNG, it's just kind of a weird episode because <laughs> this doesn't actually fundamentally change the way that Starfleet engages with terraforming, with colonizing, with any of these things. This should have been a full stop moment to be like, why are we doing this to other planets? 
you know, like, yep. and people have varying opinions on this, but I am one that feels very strongly that like, we should not colonize space. Like we mm-hmm. should not be taking over planets that are not ours. Mm-hmm. I think visiting, even visiting, honestly, you know, could be debatable. Building relationships with other life forms, if we encountered them, would be amazing. But it's just this idea of like, oh, it, it's just such a very human, very like neo-colonial idea of like, oh, someone's not using this, so I'm just going to take it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we always go back to this with these episodes, but this idea that because we saw it, we're the first to discover something. Mm-hmm. And the way that we identify, like, what land is claimed in some way and when it isn't. And I think this episode, taken on its own, could be, like, a very powerful message about that. Like, leave this shit alone. Because you may not even have... I think it's, like, a beautiful critique on the colonizer's view of everyone else being barbaric or primitive. Agreed. And here you had these like little crystals who are like, no fucker, you're the barbaric one. Get out of uh-huh. here. <laughs> like you, you know, you fucking bag of water, uh-huh. leave. And I think that that's like a pretty amazing message of like, uh-huh. you're going to go somewhere and your primitive human eyes are going to see a barren rock that's actually teeming with intelligent life, but you're not smart enough to receive it. You're uh-huh. not smart enough to see it. Um, I think that that's very cool. So I love this episode. I just, it does kind of bother me that Star Trek gave us an episode like this, but then it didn't actually fundamentally change the overwhelming, like, neocolonial vibe of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, we're supposed to forget this, you know, exists and that this happened. And even them ending the episode with, like, oh, maybe we can prevent this tragedy from happening somewhere else. And it's like, well, we've got six more seasons where <laughs> you guys definitely <laughs> where you largely did not. Did not. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and that's, you know, that's always going to be an issue, especially with these uh, older serialized shows that have so many episodes uh-huh. is like it's very common in these older shows for things to be very episodic and like not stick. Um, so I don't want to overly critique it, but it's just another another place where it's kind of frustrating to see the show have some sort of introspection, uh-huh. but then know that it's not actually going to change like the larger scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like what you said, though, because that was the, you know, that was the colonizer mentality about indigenous people in the Americas. And it mm, was actually absolutely. tied back specifically into religion. It was like, oh, well, God gave us dominion over the land. They're not using that God-given dominion to develop it. And therefore, not only are we allowed, we actually must, we're required to take the, right. to take the land. And it was, it was nice in this episode to see that actually that, you know, th- this episode, as you said, pushes back on that narrative. And it's like, no, like you can't just, like there's life here and- if you think of like Europeans as like bags of disease, which is exactly what they were, you know, mm-hmm. and they just came and decimated life. Um, then, you know, you, you look at this and, and at least Starfleet was like, okay, well, we, we need to go, you know, like we need to just put this back and like leave and quarantine the planet because there's life there. Yeah. And like maybe try again not to terraform, but like 
maybe come back when those wounds have healed and we've progressed and then try to like connect mm-hmm. and build a relationship, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 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 Anyway, I, I, I enjoyed this episode, generally speaking. It's a good comparison as well because there are so many things with the colonizers in the Americas that are a good parallel here. For instance, like with agriculture and farming, Mm -hmm. you know, the colonizers looked at um, for nations that do agriculture, a lot of times the way that they do it, it's not it's not like these uh, rows of monocrops. It's usually very free-formed kind of um, mixed crops that are mixed in together that have a really symbiotic relationship. And so, you know, even that, it's like the colonizers couldn't see Mm -hmm. (laughs) that there was agriculture right in front of them. They saw it as just like wild food growing and could not even see that that was intentional and done by humans because Mm. it didn't match their idea of what farming is. And the sick irony, I guess, is that that method of farming is far more productive and healthy for the land and fruitful than the way that, you know, we envision farming today, Mm -hmm. which again is a monocrop grown in like straight rows Mm -hmm. and like tightly controlled. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I just thought, yes, like everything about the way that this was represented in this episode was, was very true to the way that colonizers approach land that they feel in one way or another is not properly inhabited and can just absolutely miss because they think they're more civilized and more intelligent and completely miss the wisdom that's right in front of their eyes, the technology that's right in front of their eyes, like geometric shapes in the sand, you know, and just kind of overlook that as like, oh, that's weird and just keep on going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of the Dust Bowl, how the Dust Bowl was created. You know, you had all these, um, you know, really, generally speaking, you had, you know, impoverished people thinking like, well, okay, at least I can get a chunk of land and, you know, farm it. And pulling up all that prairie grass um, to do so. And for the first few years, it worked out okay, because you had higher than average rainfalls and you know, so it was okay. But then once you got lower than average rainfalls and you mix in some wind and all that prairie grass isn't there to hold the topsoil down anymore, you end up with just literal sand dunes. And it's, it goes back to that same, it goes back to that same point of, you know, the people who were doing that were, were not deliberately saying, oh, let's fuck up the ecosystem, but they were acting under the premises of you know oh let's you know let's go control the land let's let's take control um and yeah and also that like this land isn't doing anything it's not doing anything it's just sitting here do something with it yeah yeah and and that was you know that's cool that they in this episode they were like you there's no such thing as Mm -hmm. like unoccupied space i I thought that was a nice theme i thought it was amazing theme i Loved it. Mm -hmm. I thought this episode was actually pretty radical. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, again, taken on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought that was great. I was disappointed. And I think, you know, we kind of mentioned on this throughout the recap, but I was disappointed to see that that it was it wasn't explicit that the team knew or 
the director knew or something. Yeah. Because I think that would have like also helped to hammer home the point. I is know. That if you're in this colonizer headspace, then even if you do get proof of life, you're going to find ways to excuse you still taking what you wanted to take in the first place. Yeah. And I think that just would have been a really nice way to kind of like wrap everything up mm-hmm. is to show like even in even given proof of life, like Mondal, for instance, thought that what they were creating was better than what was yes. there and decided to proceed anyway. To willfully ignore those signs. Yeah. Yeah. And then I wonder, it's another thing where I wonder if the network or a producer or someone stepped in because it seemed like they were They were going, going that direction, that. yeah. And then maybe last minute someone stepped in and said, oh, no, you can't, you know, go that far. We want them. It, that's the Star Trek curse is that mm-hmm. <laughs> it's always like, Willing to tell a story like this, but then um, I think with executive inter- intervention, mm-hmm. not willing to like really go all the way with mm-hmm. it. It's like at the end, all the humans need to be have clean hands and be right. And and that, but I will say that I, I think that that's one of the things that Star Trek is able to do because it's in outer space. They get to like like the fact that they got to harp on this theme. I mean it's probably the only place on television where that could happen at this time. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. it's, and so it's cool that they did that. And they even like, I'm thinking about one of the coolest things in the episode was when Jordy and data are geeking out about the computers. Yes. They're like, Oh dude, check it I out. Know. Look at this. <laughs> and, and I love that because also they're really excited about it because of like the tech aspect of it and everything, but it's actually something that's doing harm and so even our favorite lovable space boys are caught up, you know, so caught up in the technology and the, the coolness of what's happening. I think there's a message there, too, that it's like sometimes it's so easy to get caught up in your interest and passion about something, which they played really nicely um, with the terraforming group as well, that you you almost stop questioning whether it's right or wrong and you just do it because you're doing it. And and I think they kind of even sort of alluded to that with the, you know, with the Enterprise crew, you know, because they were kind of mm-hmm. caught up in the moment, too. Yeah, yeah, I do think that that's a really good point. And kind of uh, in a probably subtle way shows how stuff gets normalized and you just don't yep. question it. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like everyone's talking about how great terraforming is. Yeah. And, referring to uh the places being terraformed as lifeless planets and you know we're taught to know that the enterprise crew is good so showing a case in which they're wrong Uh i think is a nice critique of Uh like you can you know you can um even if you're a good person you can easily become desensitized to these things that are normalized and just not have it the analysis that you should have Mm -hmm. over this stuff and yeah like you'll get all excited about the technology and and kind of forget what the technology is being used for yep which is very easy to do yep (laughs) in in all sorts of ways you know i think we're living in a time where it's like that to the nth degree we're living with all kinds of technologies that are so harmful but are also kind of cool and make our <laughs> lives maybe not actually make our lives better, but feel like they make our lives mm-hmm. better or, or are ways that we cope with capitalism mm-hmm. 
to get along. And, you know, you, you and I, maybe people like us, people listening probably do have a lot of active analysis and critiques of those things. But I think a lot of really good people don't. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're bad. It's just because it's normalized. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense to be like, oh, this, this new app, this new thing, Mm -hmm. this way to Mm -hmm. get food delivered when I'm exhausted after working all day. Like, how cool. Yep. So did you have any words of wisdom? Ugh. I had so many. I mean, not like that many, but they're like so good, I thought. Yeah. I felt like this was a, a pretty rich one for words of wisdom. Yes. Ma- whoever wrote Mondel's scripts, like amazing. Mm-hmm. Like very good writer. Mm-hmm. He always had something super profound to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so my biggest word of wisdom, and I'm thinking you probably have this on your list as well. Let me pull up my list. Um, is we were not looking and therefore we did not see. Wow. I, I don't have that one, but that is absolutely the best line from the episode. That like shook me to my core. I was like, put that on a fucking t-shirt. Like, damn. Wow. Yeah. And he say, and he did say it specifically in re- relation to life. It was when he was like really very, it was actually a pretty powerful scene, like where he was saying to Picard, I am telling you, like we were told multiple times by Starfleet that there was no life. Mm -hmm. And he said, we were not looking and therefore we did not see. So he was like defending himself Mm. saying like, we weren't looking for life because you guys told us there was no life. And he said like, not once, multiple times, we were told multiple times that there was no life here. And also saying like, so yes, there was life in front of us, but we weren't looking. So we didn't see it. How powerful is that message? So powerful. And just the, yeah, just the way it's worded is just so concise and like, yeah, super powerful. I was like, damn, (laughs) I like had to take a minute. Well, I'll add, I'll add to that when, when Wesley says, Wesley says, it's beautiful, whatever it is. And so I think there's that aspect because he was looking, you know, he he was looking for it specifically, like, like they were trying to understand what is it, you know, and Wesley was like, well, I don't know Mm -hmm. what it is, but it's beautiful. That's the other side of like, you know, well, I wasn't even looking for it. How was I supposed to see it? You know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Um, oh, did you have another one? Uh, um, well, I just thought, I really liked the line from Jordy when he says, how could it be alive? It's inorganic. Because mm-hmm. I, I love mm-hmm. that, that idea of like when you, when you have that moment of cognitive dissonance, you know, yes. you have these like two ideas yes. that don't go together, but you're like pretty sure that you must be wrong, but like which of your ideas is wrong. And yeah, I like that. I like that too. Um, I had one from Mondel. You see grand romantic concepts. I see unyielding rock under an ocean of sand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, that... that... Uh, for all parties involved, because even seeing grand romantic concepts is not necessarily great. Mm-hmm. That's how you sell the colonizer dream mm-hmm. to people. But also to be someone who, yeah, looks at looks at this place and that's how he's seeing it is like unyielding, like something that needs to be dominated and tamed and broken and rebuilt. Yeah. I was like, fuck (laughs) that really summarizes. You were so right that it captured the Silicon Valley and, 
And mm-hmm. also, I think, like, the industrialists of the late 19th century, you know? I yes. mean, yeah. it just, it and colonizers of, you know, yeah, of years the, the 17th century. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it just, that line encapsulates so much of, of modern human history. Yes. And I feel like when Star Trek is at its best, that is one of the most unique aspects of it is that it can have this thing that represents like a future we don't even have yet, uh-huh. but also be so relevant to today uh-huh. and to hundreds of years ago. Uh-huh. And I think this episode is like peak that, you know, uh-huh. it just we had this we had this scenario that, yeah, we can look at and say, oh, that's like an Elon Musk. Uh-huh. But we can also say that's a Christopher Columbus, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yep. that- and, it, and it also shows this through line of like how colonialism persists in all these different eras. It, it's what um, it, it so let's let, let me think of it this way, like Mondal is what Daniel Quinn, uh, the author of the book Ishmael, mm. it's what he would have called mother culture. You know, like like Mandel is is a perfect example of that. It's the stuff that we just take for granted. It's the story that we've been told. You know, but but I wasn't yeah. looking for it because you never told me it was there. That kind of thing, and then the crew is kind of us. You know, it's like it's like we're discovering and trying to figure out how to respond. Then because at first we're just sort of taken in by the by all of it, and then we're like, oh wait a minute, you know, when you start to see some of those cracks. Anyway, it just you're right. It, it really brilliantly applies. Yeah, to an Elon Musk, just as much like you said as it does to a Christopher Columbus. That's a great way to put it. And to a future person who doesn't exist yet, but if we don't learn our lesson, mm-hmm. is going to be hundreds of years in the future yep. doing this again yep. to someone yep. else. Yep. And I love it when Star Trek does that where they're not trying to be so on the nose. Like in the last yeah. episode, it felt like yes. there were a few things where they were just trying to be too on the nose and... In this one, also, like, this one's just a little bit, like, misanthropic in, like, a really good way. It's like, fucking people, come back in 300 (laughs) goddamn years once you've learned something. (laughs) Well, and, yes, and how often in Star Trek do we get, like, the crew not being given a pass at the end? Uh Having to suffer, I mean, granted, their consequences I think we're not that big right? in the grand scheme of things. You know, Arthur died and that is very sad and a big consequence. But I mean, you know, more largely, I'm sure the terraformers were devastated Uh to not finish their work. But usually at the end, we have that, like you always say, the Scooby-Doo moment. (laughs) I feel like here we had we had a life form being like, no, you're not forgiven. Get the fuck out of here. And like, do not come back for a long time. And I thought that that was super cool. Like we never get that. They get told off. Yeah. That's probably my number one gripe with Star Trek Mm -hmm. is like the ending always has to be too clean Mm -hmm. and make sure that we know that the crew is like absolved of any Mm -hmm. wrongdoing. And here it was kind of like, no, you fucking colonizers, uh-huh. like, get out. Uh-huh. And, you know, you could even stretch that to have, like, a fairly powerful land back uh-huh. message, um, which I know is a slightly more, it's a modern framing of this concept, yeah. but it applies. You know, it was um, once you realize someone is on the land that you're trying to take, get the fuck uh-huh. out. And that person does not owe you friendship. Uh-huh. They do not owe you business relationships 
trade any of it, get the fuck out. Mm. <laughs> and if they want to deal with you, they can, but like they should not have to. And I thought it was very cool to end the episode with such a powerful message of like, even though we know the crew is good, right? And they're the people that we are supposed to follow and see as kind of the moral compass. They were told to leave. Yeah. They were not given friendship. They were not given, you know, access to the planet. They were told to leave. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really fucking cool. That is really cool. Well, uh, yeah. Get out of here, you bag. <laughs> I, I was like, there's got to be a good, like, knock knock joke in there. Oh. <laughs> right? It's got to be like. I know. I. Like, it's kind of like, let's see. Knock knock. Are we in a workshop one? Yeah. So who's there? <laughs> ugly bags of water. Ugly bags of water. Who? Get the fuck out of here and come back in three hundred years. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in context, it works. Yeah. You couldn't tell someone that joke outside of this podcast, but. <laughs> Right now for today. Yeah, was. yeah, it could be. You could make it much, much shorter. It could just be like you know, knock, <laughs> knock, and you just tell me to get the fuck out of here and come back in three hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <sighs> uh, did you have any anti words of wisdom? Um, anti words of wisdom, or any other words of wisdom? Mm-hmm. I don't mean to cut you off. I I liked well well when Mondal said, "I create life. I don't take it." Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, prick. Um, and then, <laughs> but also as much as I, as I love um, her bisexual self, um, when, <laughs> when Kim says terraforming makes you, Commander Kim says terraforming <sighs> for me makes you yeah. feel a little godlike. I hated it. It's an anti-word of wisdom, but yeah. I loved Agreed. it because it captured the, the Silicon Valley essence. And I mean, this is the yes. late eighties. I mean, this is not, there was no Mark Zuckerberg. There was no, well, I mean, there was, but he was like, a baby um like this is this is at a time where they're they're just talking about this type of person who yes kind of gets off on feeling like they create life and yeah when actually they're destroying it and it, it's it's interesting to see both of their responses too because because commander kim she she just like kind of like crumbles oh, she yeah. you know and and Mondal is just kind of like uh like deer in headlights, you know. But it's cool that they don't have the exact same response even at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would think you know talking media literacy, which is something we're sorely lacking in um, in general nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think I am actually okay with. Kim being the one who says something like that in the beginning Uh in terms of, I think in the context of the episode, it is a critique, Uh you know, Uh like I, like I think, you know, we're invited into this kind of everyone is just like really into it, you know, and everyone's having fun and no one's really thinking about the consequences of what they're seeing. They're just thinking this technology is cool and this person's so passionate and Uh I get to talk to people who care about my work and she says this thing that is like a pretty huge insight mm-hmm. <laughs> unintentionally right into what is foreshadowed later basically but also a critique i think it ends up being a critique throughout the course of the show yeah. because she is the one to as you said take this the most seriously 
And I feel like if you couple that line about feeling godlike and pair it with her later line where she says, if we kept going, we would have killed everything. Yeah. Where the way she delivers that line, she's just crushed, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I think she's experiencing sort of that feeling you get uh, when you almost get into an accident or you mm. realize like you almost killed somebody mm. or that you could have killed somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like if you swerve on the road and you almost hit someone or whatever, it's a horrible feeling. And I feel like she it to me, she was experiencing that on this like very existential planet wide kind of level of having this moment and to me that is the other side of that godlike feeling mm. is if you are godlike that means you could destroy an entire planet's worth of life mm. if you don't know what you're doing and so i think for her like her entire narrative to me was subtle but amazing that you have someone who does seem so kind you know she comes off very warm mm-hmm very passionate like she just seems like a nice person Mm -hmm. so it's not like with mondal where at least you get this like grumpy authority figure kind of guy where you're like okay i'm gonna keep my eye on this guy with her she just seems so kind and then she delivers this line that's kind of like whoa Mm -hmm. you know i wouldn't expect someone like you to say something like this but to your point earlier too i think it is part of that getting caught up in the technology and what you're doing and losing sight of the dangers of what you're doing. Just like the boys being at the console and, you know, geeking out on all the cool stuff. And I think for her to be the one that seems to be the most devastated and to like fully understand what they did and what they almost did the most, I think it was a good just kind of full circle moment to hammer home the themes of the episode. Mm. Did I had an anti word of wisdom? Did, oh yeah, I was I was just about to say. <laughs> did you have any uh, anti words? Um, I don't know if you remember this moment, but this is Mondal. All, all of my quotes are him. Um, because it is not important. So Louisa said, "Why didn't you tell us this?" Because it wasn't important. He says it is not it is, important. Oh, oh, it is not important. Which I don't know if it was him misspeaking, but I feel No, like I think that's it, very It would have deliberate. been pretty profound anyway, but like he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he said because it is not important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an anti-word of wisdom and that's such, again, such a good representation of what they each were in the episode. You know, he's like the old school doing things by the book wants to have control, you know, there's a very specific reason he's in this line of work and how it appeals to his privileges and his personhood. And I think with Louisa, you have someone who, again, is a woman, a woman of color. She's um, passionate. She's living in an abstracted reality, apparently. (laughs) And just kind of like this softer representation of, I think, what younger generations typically think of themselves when they get into fields where they think they're doing good. And you have this kind of like old guard who thinks that they have the right to decide what is important and what is not. Mm -hmm. When the younger people, had they been given that information maybe would actually look at it with curiosity and openness and a willingness to see their own faults yeah. in order to actually do more good. And so I just thought that moment of this younger 
woman who like genuinely thinks she's doing a good thing says to this guy who's supposed to be, I'm sure, a bit of a mentor, uh-huh. you know, someone who's overseeing not just the project, but also like the morality uh-huh. of what they're doing uh-huh. and ask him, like, why did you not yeah. share this? Why did you keep this information me? from us? And he says, because it's not important. And to me, that just fucking speaks volumes, you know, of how I feel about the boomer generation, mm-hmm. how I feel about so many things. And and when I look around, what I see in people who maybe work at a zoo, who maybe work at Greenpeace, who maybe work um, in the government somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. and they're and they're genuinely in jobs where they they are doing them because they think they're doing something good. Mm-hmm but are open if someone's like, hey, there's actually issues with some of the stuff Mm -hmm. and here's why, Mm -hmm. would actually be open to saying, well, shit, I didn't know that. I don't want to be contributing harm. Mm -hmm. You know, let me, can we problem shoot it or let me stop participating Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I think Louisa represented that really well of like the second she realized what the stakes actually were, she's like, I don't, I don't want to do this, Mm -hmm. you know, and I would have stepped out immediately if I had found out. Yeah. And she probably would have been someone to say, well, maybe we don't know, but we have enough information to kind of, you know, ask the question. Maybe we should stop and like call the Federation and get an expert here, you know? Yeah. Whereas Mondal just is like in that zone of like, no, we have a project, we have deadlines, we have to go, go, go. Where even when the geometric shapes start popping up, he's just like, <laughs> you know, he's just like, no, it's it's got to be nothing because he's just relying yeah. on, they said there was nothing, so there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And also this, I think it's also that like his identity is built on this myth that he's creating life. Mm-hmm. And it's just, but in this way, like he talks about it very poetically, but it's really kind of muscle memory or something. It's like very rote Uh almost uh like we just do these projects and we do these projects and we keep doing these projects and we meet the deadlines and we do the things. And even when he was talking about the vegetation graphs, he's like every single thing is planned by us Uh like everything that's going to grow is going to grow because of us Uh and i was just like oh boy (laughs) i'm like you're not you're not like like i feel louisa represents like oh like i'm creating life like that's so cool Uh you know i'm i'm bringing living things to a planet that didn't have living things whereas mondel's like i made this yeah like i did this this was me and I think it's it's kind of an interesting representation of those two. You know, it could be generation. You could say it's generational or you could say it's like maybe political ideology or even personal identity. Mm-hmm. But it's just an interesting juxtaposition between the two of them. Yeah. And then Bjorn was like a fucking dud. I don't know we really what he was him. doing in this episode <laughs> except sporting a mullet. Yeah. Which was fine because I'm so happy about how much screen time Louisa got. Yeah. So it's like, that's okay. But it was funny that he just was sort of there. <laughs> he just seems sort of like shocked and like out of his depth. <laughs> but he was so weird because he's like shushing, you know, Mallinson. He's like, mm-hmm. shh, don't talk about it. And it's like, but like, what, what, <laughs> why are you, what else are you, anyway. Um, yeah. Did you have an episode rating? Ugh, I couldn't come up with one. I didn't have enough time to percolate. Did you have one? Well, I th- if we're going to do a, a callback, it's like, you know, great joy. 
Yes. You know? This is definitely a great joy. It is. This is a great it's joy. It's almost like a reverse great joy episode, because at the end of that episode, they were cool with the aliens. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I give I, I would give this episode like but, two jellyfish, you know? Like it's oh, yeah. yeah. But I but if I wanted to take another Troy line, we could say all life is beautiful. That's the rating. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, maybe my episode rating is come back in 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know what the next episode is? Because I sure don't. Oh, no. I do. I do. I know. I know. Oh, yay. <laughs> I was so pretty. Coming up, we have season one, episode 18, Coming of Age, where Ooh. Wesley takes an exam and the Enterprise gets a investigation. Do I remember this one? You do. It sounds you will remember familiar. it because it starts with Wesley like running up to talk to one of his friends. I it, I think it's a very Wesley focused one. Nice. Yeah. So. Oh my God, we are just like swimming in oh, good it's, TNG right I know. Now. I know. I feel like we're finally being rewarded for making it making it to the, the, the first part one. of season one. Yeah, yeah where people see, I do hate when people say you can just skip season one because I'm like, there, there are, are some, some gems. really fucking good episodes that I do think like matter to the rest of the show. This episode is in the top like twenty, probably. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. This is a very good episode. Yeah. With a very good message, yeah. and it was very well written. Mm -hmm. Everyone acted, you know, was great in their mm -hmm. roles. Like, it was another one, like, last time where we didn't have anything that was, like, cheesy or campy, mm -hmm. which I which I can enjoy. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know... Except for the, the, the voice. The, camp. The, 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 the microbrain voice was a little, like... <laughs> I was I, I was thinking that I, I was wishing they had done like a text readout on the screen and then had one of the characters read yeah. it as opposed to having the like more oh, that would have been a good idea. Beep, pop, 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 beep. <laughs> that was a little cheesy for me. Or I was thinking like since they were trying to communicate visually, like data would have been able to read the patterns. Yes, it was, it was exactly. interesting that they were trying to decipher the patterns the whole time and then they never could. Mm -hmm. Or they kept saying there wasn't a pattern. Uh -huh. And I'm like, but there was a pattern, uh -huh. at least earlier. Uh -huh. Anyway. Um, yes, I agree. The voice was a little bit cheesy. But everyone else was quite good. Yeah, yeah. Except maybe Arthur's dying death <laughs> throat. Oh, no. Which, pew, pew, again. <laughs> pew, pew. <laughs> that one. If we had more active social media, we could put out a poll and be like... <laughs> Was Arthur, was Arthur's death funny or not? Or horrifying. <laughs> it's funny or horrifying. or horrifying. Those are the two options. <laughs> I'll probably go to pull the clip and be like, oh, this is actually horrifying. I know. I want you to, I, I, I want you to, to, to listen to it again and be like, ooh, ooh, missed that one. <laughs> yeah. <Yikes. laughs> All right, friends. Well, we had so much fun today. Uh -huh. This is amazing. And uh, fuck, we're going to be ne back next time with a Wesley-centric episode. You better be Does here. life get any better than uh -uh. this? I don't think so. No. All right. Well, we'll see you there. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on our mission, comrade. 
To keep this galaxy-class starship chugging along, we need your help. If you like the show, consider supporting us by leaving us a good review on iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. Follow us on Instagram, share us with your friends, promote us on social media, or become a financial supporter of the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash redshirtcollective. Now, get off my ship. 